It's good to gather with you this morning. I'm grateful for you. My family is grateful for your prayers and concerns for my family as we uh, had an unexpected death with my grandmother. Um, I was telling someone, one of my friends was asking me the other day why I love the church so much, why I have such hope in the church, Uh, not just our church, but the church universal. And um, they're not a believer, and so I was just kind of telling them the reason for my desire and the, my love for the church. Um, it's where, uh, and if you know my family, my family is very dysfunctional. It was the first place when I came to know Jesus at 18, I went to a church in Baytown, Texas, and it was the first place I found true family. And from that day on, I've always looked at church as my family. And so uh, this week, y'all have been family to me, and I'm grateful for that and your support and your prayers. Uh, you don't understand what they mean to me uh, as a pastor, but more importantly, as your brother in Christ. Um, that, that's, um, again, people ask me all the time. I, I, I look at myself, I know I'm a pastor, but I'm, a, I'm just a fellow brother in Christ with you. Um, and so it's good to be with a family. Uh, that's why for me, gathering with the people of God in the church is important. Uh, I'm grateful for technology, uh, but there's oftentimes I wish technology would go away. So that would force us back into this building together. Uh, and become a family. You can't do family over uh, Zoom or on this uh, this technology. So again, if you're gathering with us, I'm grateful that you would sacrifice your time and energy to be in this building. If you're online, I'm grateful that you take the time to even to be online, but I implore you, come back to this place. Uh, it's not the building that's important. It's the gathering of the saints that's important. Uh, Jesus made that so clear. The Apostle Paul made that so clear that we are to gather, never forsake the gathering of believers is what the Apostle Paul says. And so, again, I am very, very grateful and thankful for your prayers and your reaching out to to me this week. Uh, My grandmother was a dear, dear woman to to me, and so her loss was significant to me. So again, thank you for those prayers. The only announcement I have for us this morning is is we will have a business meeting on November the 4th, November the 4th at 6, at 6 o'clock here in this, in this building. Uh, we will continue to have our business meetings moving forward. So this is just the first one since we've had in March. Uh, there's no uh, catastrophic news that we are announcing. We just need to gather and begin to talk about the business of the church. And so our first business meeting back will be November the 4th. So please join us. Uh, for that. Let me go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll be in Genesis chapter 33. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, as we just sang, you are a good, good father. I pray that we would never forget that. Um, Out of all the things that you say, one of the things you say about yourself is that you are a father, and so I'm grateful for that. And you are good and you're kind, and you're gracious to us. And so for whatever we're going through and experience now, God, I pray that we'd look to you as a good Father that desires to provide all of our needs, to care for us, and uh, that loves us unconditionally. And we're grateful for that. God, I'm grateful for this church and what it means to me, what it means to Jenny and my family through this time of loss for us and just how they've rallied around us and have asked how we're doing. I'm so grateful for that. I'm grateful for Powell's Chapel and what this church has meant to me almost for these last six years. I'm grateful. 
uh, for these brothers and sisters in You. And now, God, we come and we humble ourselves under Your mighty hand as You tell us to in Romans chapter 12. And that You, by us humbling ourselves under Your mighty hand, that You would renew our minds. And it's by the washing and the reading and the teaching and the preaching of Your Word that would renew our minds. So give us great hope today that comes only from Christ that will come as we understand what true reconciliation is. So lead us and guide us, I pray this morning. We offer ourselves to you as a living sacrifice. We pray this in Christ's mighty name. Amen. Uh, Jared, if you could uh, deal with the echo, it's driving me bonkers. Um, is it echoing to anyone else or is it just me? It's like in my ears, so I apologize. Uh, let's turn to Genesis chapter 33. As a way to in introduction, I'll kind of tell you where we're at. We're on the, the back end of the story of Jacob. Jacob is one of the patriarchs, you know, the father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was a patriarch. He was one of the fathers of the Israel nation uh, to be Israel. And we've seen in his story a man of great tragedy and a man of great triumph. But in that story, we see one remaining story that God made a promise to him and that God was faithful to his promises. If you were with us last week, we looked at uh, Jacob, and he was told by God to go back to the promised land. And so he's making his way back to the promised land, and God wants to deal with him. Uh, God wants to deal with his heart and change his heart. And remember, he wrestles with God overnight. And in wrestling with God, he prevails against God to the point that God throws his hip out of socket and brings him to a place of humbling him under God's mighty hand. He was preparing him to for the promised land. And we looked at how God does that with His people. That God has to do a change in us to prepare us for the kingdom, His kingdom, heaven. That without God humbling us and changing us both internally and therefore externally, then we cannot enter into the promised land. And so now here we have where, if you remember, He's got all this anxiety before he encounters God. The anxiety was coming out of meeting his older brother. His older brother who he had swindled out of both his birthright and the blessing. And so if you remember when we talked about Esau, the very last words that Esau, we heard Esau say was, I will find pleasure or joy in killing my younger brother. He's robbed me of all this stuff. When my father dies, I cannot wait to kill him. And so for the last 20 years, that's been in the heart of Jacob, that his older brother has this desire to kill him. And if you remember, Rebecca, his mother, Jacob's mother, Esau's mother, sends him to Laban, the uncle, and says, hey, I'll send word for you when your brother's cooled off a little bit, and then you can come back to the promised land. That word never came back from Rebecca. It was come from the Lord. The Lord had one that intervened on Jacob's behalf, and he was coming back to the promised land out of uh, obedience to God. Now, I'll give the punchline to the sermon away. The punchline to the sermon are twofold. The first one we'll look at is reconciliation, but the, the last one is more important, I believe. Remember that Jacob was called by God to return to the promised land, but in the promised land, he was also called to go to Bethel. As you'll see, he returns to the promised land, but he doesn't return to the spot that God had called him to. And I often think in our lives that we have um, what I would call partial obedience to God. So he's partially obedient to God by returning to the promised land, 
but he's disobedient to God to the spot that God had called him to, which was Bethel. And I wonder in your life, and I wonder in my life as a way of application before I even start this message, how often do we have partial obedience and we think it's complete obedience? You see, partial obedience to God is still complete disobedience to God. And if there's disobedience to God in our life, we'll see in the next few chapters this moment where Jacob, by being partially obedient, completely disobedient, brings havoc in his life. Again, all the things that Jacob had been doing, it looks like, man, this is a man that's changed. He even had his name changed. But yet, when it comes to pressure, Jacob defaults back to his old ways. Is that not true for you? It's true for me. That I have these encounters with the Lord, but then when anxiety and pressure from the, the world get heaped upon me, my tendency is to revert back to myself and not trust the Lord and live with partial obedience. And think to myself, because I'm obedient, quote unquote, then I'm going to find the blessings of the Lord. No, it's only through complete obedience to the Lord and what God has called us to that we will ever receive His complete blessing. And so with that, I want to look this morning at this journey of Jacob as he encounters his brother. So two things as a way of application. I'll spend more time on the reconciliation part because I think that's important for us. But on the very last end, we're going to look at what it looks like to be completely obedient. So the the title of the sermon this morning is Reconciliation. We're going to look at several things. We'll look at the preparation for the reconciliation. We'll look at the meeting that brings about the reconciliation. We'll look at the present that uh, Jacob offers for reconciliation. We'll look at the peaceful separation. And then we'll look at where Jacob finally settles. So let's look at verses 1 through 2, the preparation. It says this, that it's right after that his hip was blown out of socket. He gets up from that long journey, that long wrestling match with the Lord. And it says this, And Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming with 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front and Leah with her children and then Rachel and Joseph last of all. So the preparation that Jacob sees after having this wrestling match with the Lord, he opens his eyes and he sees this herd of people coming after him. Remember, the last thing that Jacob thought was his brother was out to kill him. So in Jacob's mind, here comes Esau to kill him. He makes preparation for this moment. And he divides his family. Remember, he had four wives. One that he loved the most, that was Rachel. And because of that, Rachel, he loved Joseph more than all the other Children, we'll come to see that in a few texts. So here's Jacob plotting and planning, not remembering what God had said to him just moments before. Moments before, he said, I'll be with you and I'll protect you. And now all of a sudden, Jacob resorts back to himself and he makes this plan to keep his family safe. I wonder what was happening in the mind of the family where here Jacob is, hey, you two servants, you're going to go out front first. Hey, then Leah, you're going to go out next. And then uh, Rachel, you and Joseph are going to be at the very tail end. Well, who do you think is going to die last? If there's going to be a fight, who's going to die last? The favorites. 
Though the servants not so much love, Leah we know he doesn't love, and Rachel and Joseph he adores. I wonder in this moment in verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 33 is where the bitterness of the 11 brothers comes from. Remember what's going to happen. We already know the story. What, what happens in just a few chapters is what happens. The brothers are out tending the sheep and God through Jacob sends Joseph to look after the brothers and the brothers plot his death. And I wonder if this moment and those 11 brothers' minds came to fruition. Hey, remember that time our dad divided us? and was going to make sure that Joseph lived? We're going to get him back. And they do get him back. But I just wonder if this is where all of the hostility came from. From one father's favoritism. So that's the preparation. And so he made preparation to make sure that Rachel, his beloved wife, and Joseph, his son, would die last if they had to die at all. And now we see the meeting in verses 3-7. through seven. He, Jacob himself, went before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And when Esau lifted his eyes and saw the woman and the children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. And then the servants drew near, they and their children, and they bowed down. Like Leah likewise, and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down as well. So here's the meeting. Here Joseph is. He's got his family behind him. He goes out in front. And he bows down to his brother. It's significant in the text that he would bow down seven times. Re remember what God had said about Jacob when he was born. That the older would serve the younger. But now we see here this place of respect and submission. That's what it means for him to bow down. In that time, if someone met you and they bowed down to you seven times, that was the person that was bowing, submitting themselves to the one they were bowing down to, as well as showing respect. And I don't know what happened in the heart of Esau in that moment. But I wonder if Esau had made plans for there to be this all-out attack. Again, you don't show up somewhere with 400 people to, to bring a peace treaty. You show up with 400 people because you're expecting a fight. And something must have happened in the heart of Esau as he saw all these people with Jacob. As he saw Jacob, it says this, that he ran to him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. There was a moment of reconciliation. Now, I don't know, when I was reading this text and studying this text this week, another story came to mind. Luke chapter 15. Do you remember when the younger son had returned from his wandering ways, what the father did. He ran to him. He fell on his neck. He kissed him. And he embraced him. He forgave him. I wonder if Jesus had this story in mind when he was telling the parable of Luke chapter 15. We see that God had softened the heart of Esau. 
He asked his brother who these people were. He, now they, there's this family reunion. There's this family introduction. After the family introduction, we now see the present that Jacob offers to his older brother. Let's look at verses 8, and 11, 8 9, 10, and 11. Esau, saw, Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I meet? Jacob said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have to yourself. Jacob said, no, please. If I have found favor in your sight, then accept my presence from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God. And you have accepted me. Please accept my blessings that I brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. We see three things in this present, this offering, if you will. First, he presents this present as a place of finding favor with his brother. He says that in the text. I've given you all this that I may find favor in your sight. The, thing, the next one is this. It's a, it's a thank you offering. He's thanking Esau for sparing his life. Remember that Jacob, what he said back in chapter 32, I had seen God's face and prevailed. Remember seeing God's face for him. He now says, it's like seeing the face of God. What came to Jacob's mind was this. The last time I saw God's face, it came with great favor, blessing, and forgiveness. And now again, I look into the face of God as a reminder that you accept me and forgive me. You mean no harm to me. And so he's thanking Esau for that. The last we see this, it's a blessing. Remember who stole the blessing. Who stole the blessing with Jacob and now he's making restitution for the blessing that he stole. He, he says that in the text. Please accept my what blessing that I brought to you. The very thing I stole for you, I now want to return to you. In the idea of reconciliation, there has to be restitution. If there is no re restitution and reconciliation, we don't have reconciliation. I'll get to that as a way of application at the end. And the last thing that we see after this is there's this urging to accept the gift. He urges his brother. You may wonder in your mind, why is Jacob so adamant about his older brother accepting these gifts? Remember, Esau is adamantly about, I don't want the gifts. I don't want the gifts. And Jacob is pressing and pressing the point. Here's the reason he's pressing the point. He knows if the older brother accepts the gift, then therefore the older brother has come to a place of true forgiveness. So he's making sure, hey, there has to be forgiveness. Because I don't want to live the rest of my life wondering, thinking, are you out to kill me? And in pressing and urging, Esau finally accepts the gift. And now, after the gift has been accepted, we see this peaceful separation. This is the place in the text where Jacob goes back to his old ways. Like just a, a, a chapter before, he has this encounter with the Lord. And yet now we see Jacob go back to his old deceitful ways. We can miss that in the text. But it says this, and then in verse 12, and Esau said, let us journey on our way. 
and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and the herds are a care to me. Meaning I need to take care of them. If they are driven hard for for one day, all the flock will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of His servant and I will lead so on softly or slowly at a pace for the livestock that are ahead of me and a pace of the children till we come to my Lord and Siar. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Siar. But Jacob journeyed to Sokol and built himself a house and made booze for his livestock there at the name of the place was so so called. So here we see that there's this moment that Esau is saying to Jacob, hey, Jacob, come back to my house and be with me and be with my family and I want to care for you and provide for you and that we can have true restoration and reconciliation. But Jacob, in his fear, rather than just saying the truth, the truth was what? No, God has said to me to go to Bethel, to go to the land of promise where He's going to prosper me, where He's going to bless me. You see, Jacob had no intention of going with his brother. At all. But he devises this plan. And it sounds so great on paper. But it's coming from a heart of deceitfulness, of wickedness. Jacob is again resorting back to his old ways because he's not trusting in what God had told him. Again, I wonder for us, how often we do that. That we know what God has said to us. We know where God has called us. And we don't come out and say straight out what God's called us to. We devise a plan. We manipulate. We trick people. That's what Jacob is doing here. I'm sure that Esau knew and Esau basically said okay and they went on their way. But in going on their way, now we see where he settles. It says this, that he came to that place after his older brother had wandered in front of him. It says that he came safely to the city of Shechem, which is the land of Canaan, on the way to Badarim. And he camped there before the city. Remember, Canaan was in the land of promise. As we'll see in chapter 35, as you Flip back, we'll see God did not call him to Canaan, but God had called him to Bethel, the place of God. Remember, Bethel was the place that he had made and had the dream where God was ascending and descending on the ladder. And God said, I want you to come back here. And yet we can see a lot like Lot. He gets close, and in getting close, havoc is all over him. I wonder what it was for Jacob in that moment that called him to have delayed or partial obedience to God. I think it's fair to say that Jacob lived most of his life in fear. Everywhere you look where Jacob fails, there's some string attached to it that's a place of fear. And I wonder for us, church, when we have delayed or partial obedience, 
Is it because we are fearful? I would say this to us this morning. Fear is a direct result of how we trust the Lord. Do we really trust what God has said? Because if we trust what God has said, then we will have full obedience to what God's called us to. And yet Satan, in his wily ways, gets us to what? Distrust God. It's what he did at the very beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve. He planted just enough of the seed in their minds and hearts to have partial obedience or partial trust in the Lord. Remember what he said. Did God really say that? And in that moment, there's partial trust for the Lord. And in that moment of partial trust, there is complete disobedience that we now suffer from. And everyone will always suffer because of that one moment of partial trust or partial obedience to God. But what we do see here in the text is that this. We know that God wants us to be reconciled to people. We know that because God wants to be reconciled to us. That's the whole reason that Genesis 3 is true, that God knew that there was separation between us and Him. And He said in Genesis 3 that He was going to send a seed or send a man that was going to bring reconciliation to make sure that God's people would be back with God no matter what we did. That He would always forgive us and always provide reconciliation. So for us this morning, church, the first thing that we must ask, are there, is there anyone in your life that is like Esau to you, that you must be reconciled to? Because if there's anyone in your life and in my life that I'm not reconciled, that is disobedience because God has called us to reconciliation. He desires us to be reconciled to Him and to one another. So I want to give five, I want to give seven practical steps of how we can reconcile to other people that we're in conflict with. The first one would be this. How are we to address or become reconciled with people? The first, uh, this is from an author named Ken Sandy. He, he wrote a book about reconciliation or about confession. He says this, the first thing we must do is we must address everyone that was involved. So any harm that came, anyone that was part of the problem must be now part of the solution. We must address everyone that's involved. The second thing he says this, avoid if, but, and maybe. Those are words of excuse. Well, if you had done this, but I would have done this. So he says to avoid those words, if, but, or maybe. The next one is, very hard if you've ever tried to reconcile with people, is to admit the exact nature of our wrongs, both in our actions and in our attitude. So what's the attitude that drove the action? So yes, you want to admit where you did wrong in the action, but I think more importantly, it's the heart of where it came from. And so often we'll address the action, but not the heart. And God wants us to address the heart when it comes to reconciliation. The next one is this. We must acknowledge the hurt 
that we've caused to the other person. An acknowledgement, a validation of, yes, I know I've hurt you, and here's how I know I've hurt you. The next one is this. We must accept the full consequences of what we've done to the other person. Meaning we must make full restitution. That is what we see Jacob do. His attempt by giving all that stuff to Esau was to make restitution for what he had done and how he had harmed his brother. The next one is this. After we've done these first five things, then we must have a change in our behavior. We can't go to someone and ask for reconciliation and ask for reconciliation if we're not willing to alter our behavior so it doesn't change again. How many times have you seen someone and they keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again? Like that's the thing we're pressing in with our children. Like you can say sorry a thousand and one times. And I'll forgive you a thousand and one times. But my desire is that your behavior changes. That your heart changes. And we can't make the excuse, well, that's just the way I am. No. If we're Christ's followers, Christ has changed us. Therefore, our behavior must change. So we alter our behavior. The last one is this. Then we ask for forgiveness. Notice how the writer does not say ask for forgiveness first. He makes that the last step in the process of reconciliation. Because for us, all those other six things will bring a heart change. And when the heart is changed and the behavior is changed, then we can really, truly offer ourselves to another person. Holy. And so do we ask for forgiveness? You see, our greatest example of this is Christ Himself. Christ was a sinless man. He did no wrong. But what did he do? He avoided, he, he addressed everyone that was involved, God's holiness and our sinfulness. He never made an excuse. Remember, even when he was getting beat, it says in Isaiah that he didn't even open his mouth as a way of defense. He talked exactly to us about our condition and our attitude. He also acknowledges how we've been hurt and harmed. And He's the one that accepted the full consequences of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And so we look to Him as a way to alter our behavior and our actions because of what Christ has done for us because He has offered us forgiveness. My challenge to you this morning is twofold. Have you come to a place of accepting God's forgiveness because He desires reconciliation with you? If you're a Christ follower and you've accepted Christ's forgiveness, then Paul tells us in Romans, now we are to live peacefully of all men. So it's our job to go and be reconciled to other people. You see, if there's any person in your life or persons in your life that you are not 
reconciled to or forgiven, it will lead to a ton of resentment. And resentment leads to a ton of bitterness. And bitterness leads to death of the soul, does it not? And so for us as the people of God, what if we, the people of God, would live with reconciliation with people? I don't think our world would be in the catastrophe in if we, the Christian, would live with reconciliation. You see, in about two weeks, we're going to have, and this just happened to me this week, we're going to have an election that's super divisive. And already, from other believers, called into question who I'll vote for. Instead of I vote for a certain person, I'm not a believer. This is coming from an, a believer. This didn't even come from an unbeliever. In that moment, I thought to myself, Satan will use this election to divide the church. Let it not be so. Let us live with reconciliation and forgiveness and kindness with one another and live at peace with one another so that we, the church, can continue to be the salt and light to the world to show the world that there is a God that wants to be reconciled to them. May in two weeks, the church not be divided because of a man that's going to be president. But let us, the church, stand firm that God says in Romans 13, He puts all men in charge. And we may not like that part of the verse, but whoever is elected in November, it's because God and God alone decided that man to be elected. If we believe that God is sovereign in control, so let us not be divided because of a man. Let us be united because of the man, Christ. He brought us reconciliation. Let us bring that to the world. Let me pray. God, I pray for us this morning. I pray that we would be a church that would be reconciled first to You, and then to one another. The only way that we can be reconciled to one another is because we've experienced the love and reconciliation of Christ Jesus in our life. So lead us and guide us and give us great hope because of all that You've done for us and all that You continue to do for us. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Please rise for the benediction this morning. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you today.